This is, this is a message that is so important, so, so biblical, and yet so rejected by huge portions, almost all portions of unbelieving society. So it's going to be a challenge. We're going to have to leave so much of what we heard at the door. In fact, throw it in the trash. What matters not, is not what society says. It's not what that self-help book says. It's not what your favorite guru says. It's what the Bible says. In fact, I can, I can speak from personal experience. One of my favorite moments I ever had was even before, before I entered vocational ministry. And I've told, told some of you this story before, but in short, this couple's marriage was just, to say it was on the rocks is, 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 is an understatement. They were on the verge of divorce. The husband was struggling with drunkenness. His wife had kicked him out, and he found himself in, 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 in a Bible study that I was leading. I barely knew what I was doing, but I, I, I could take people to the Scriptures and try to counsel them so that they could become a normally functioning member of the church. And years and years went by uh, observing this couple and, and dealing with the ebb and flow of things that were going on in their marriage, and they had come more than once to, to the precipice of divorce and just, j- just getting it done with. And then after moving out here, I ended up uh, going back to, to L.A. To a, a, to a pastor's conference, and I saw, I saw this gentleman, and I asked him how his marriage was going, and he said, you know what, Jonathan, better than ever. And I said, what, was, what happened? What's the difference? Because the last time I saw you, things seemed pretty bad. And he said, I sat down with my wife one day, and I asked us this question. Honey, are we going to obey the Scriptures? That's it. So when it comes to your marriage, I don't care if your marriage is healthy, praise God, but if your marriage is in the pits, if, if, you just, if you're wondering how in the world are we going to keep doing this, how in the world am I going to keep hanging on and keep doing the things the way we've been doing them, I'm going to say, stop, stop doing things the way you're doing them, come to the scriptures together and ask one another as man and wife, this is the moment. Are we or are we not going to listen to the word of God? And if your answer is yes, continue with me. Because that is, it must rule the day. That is the most important thing. Not your feelings, not your profound insights. It's what does God have to say about marriage, about being a wife, about being a husband. And I guarantee you, if you obey the scriptures as the Holy Spirit empowers you, your marriage will glorify Christ. It will be a sweet picture of what God designed it to be. So I would say, if you're here now, don't don't give up hope. But this is what you, you, if you leave with one thing today, it is this. I must obey the scriptures. I must listen to God and not other people, not other books, not my own feelings. Can we agree on that? All right. Awesome. Okay. I really want to underscore what a precious gift marriage is. That's something we, we, we often forget. We, we see marriage as something that we tolerate. We see our wife or husband as that other person that we merely put up with. And this is very sad because marriage is meant to be one of the, the great joys of life one of the greatest needs that, that God met for man, looked down upon man and said, it is not good for him to be alone. I will provide for him a help me. And that's exactly what he did. And he did it with a rib. Amazing what God can do. <laughs> Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The person that God has given us to spend the rest of our lives with is the person that, apart from Christ, we are to treasure above all else. Most of you, when you took your vow, said something like this, said this phrase, forsaking all others. What you were vowing in that moment of time was to prioritize your husband or wife above all other things. Yes, even your kids. In fact, raising your kids should reflect, should be emblematic of a marriage that is committed to Christ, that you serve one another and together you serve the living God. We treasure one another above all other things. We are faithful to one another. We give the relationship the most attention and respect and honor. 
And when it comes to spiritual well-being, it is our husband or wife's spiritual well-being that we guard the most. And if the man and his wife are both believers, I think this text is going to be especially helpful for you because if you consider the context, what's going on here? You have an unequally yoked marriage. You have a believing wife in, this, in these first several verses married to an unbelieving husband. So what Peter is describing is already a, a, not, a not ideal situation. And so how much more can we say then, shall our marriage be blessed if as mutual believers in Jesus Christ, we are able to obediently, humbly, and consistently apply these things as the grace of God enables us. Marriage is precious. We want to attend to it, tend to it faithfully. Rather than seeing it as an opportunity to see our own desires fulfilled, our needs, our dreams, our aspirations come to fruition. There's so much more than that. We don't want all of those potential distractions within this sacred bond of marriage to leave us damaged, to leave us spiritually starved. That would be so tragic if that were the case. And so Scripture calls our attention this morning to listen and to respond accordingly. And keep in mind, guys, this passage is not one that stands alone. Marriage is something that is so fundamental, so important, so reflective of our life in Christ. It's repeated many other places in Scripture. You think about the New Testament. Ephesians 5 talks about it. Colossians, Titus 2, 1 Timothy 2. It's all over the place, this relationship between man and wife, and it's very consistent. And so we have to see these things as, as binding and not subject to the cultural norms. What Scripture says about marriage here is timeless. And I, you know, I, 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 I hear so much about how marriages struggle, and, and so much of what is behind that struggle is that man and wife are starving one another spiritually. They're, they're living in a home, and maybe by all accounts, things look great, but they are spiritually starved. They are spiritually famished. You know, you know think of this picture. You, you know, man and wife, you're sitting in your house, and you're, and you're like, what is, what is that smell? What is that that I keep smelling? And then you look at your shoe and you're like, man, I'm starving. This, this shoe looks good. I'm just going to start chewing on this shoe because it's food. It's better than nothing. I, you know, we weren't meant to eat shoes, but this looks appetizing. And all the while you're asking, what is that smell? Then pretty soon it hits you. That's, that smells delicious. What is that smell? And then you look at the table as you're spitting your shoe leather out and you're like, that's, that's a steak dinner on the table. Steak dinner. Yeah. With a side of more steak. <laughs> and delicious sides, and a, and a glass of sweet red wine to accompany it. It's, it's the feast of all feasts. See, that's, that's how we treat the Word of God. We leave it just sitting on the table when it's meant to nourish us and to fill us and to delight us and to satisfy us. So, so, so spit out the shoe leather, right? Come to the table and come and feast upon the Word of God. Listen to it. Believe it. Obey it and watch it do its undeniable work. So let's look at the first thing. I'm going to break this down pretty easily, and I doubt that we're going to get through this whole uh, text this morning, and that's okay. Um, and, and men, I'm talking to the wives first. Listen along, but here is the rule, okay? When I say things to your wife, do not elbow her and say, yeah, okay? <laughs> listen along. And use what I say to try to encourage her and to lead her. All right. <laughs> Here's the first part. We can call this simply the exhortation of submission. So look at the first phrase. In the same way. So this points back to the entirety of the text leading up to this one we're in this morning, chapter 3, verse 1. So, so let us be clear about what Peter does not mean. When he says, in the same way, he is not instructing wives to orient themselves to their husbands like slaves. In fact, this has never been the case with God's chosen people. So what he does mean is that if they apply the same attitude in relationship to their husband as, as they do in submitting to the civil authorities, as well as to masters, but most importantly, in reverence to Christ and following his example, the parameters become very clear. Wives, in the same way, 
Submit to your husbands. Bring yourself willfully under the man of the house. And of course, this comes with exceptions in the same way we relate to government. Wives, fall under the authority and direction of your husband, but when your husband commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands, that is the exception of submission. What this also means, listen very carefully, what this also means is that if your husband is acting the fool, if he is acting in an ungodly manner, you got to remember too, you're not just his wife, you're his sister in Christ. It is your prerogative to call him out on his ungodly behavior. You don't hide the light of the gospel. You don't hide the light of grace when you enter marriage. No, you shine it brightly. It exposes that ungodly behavior. It doesn't mean you're being disrespectful. It doesn't mean you're being insubordinate. It means that you look at Christ, first of all, and foremost, as your ultimate authority, and you are pointing your husband to that reality. So be submissive to your husbands. Now look at this, look at this word, be submissive to your own husbands. This word own is used very purposefully. What this signifies is closeness, the closeness, the, the intimacy of that relationship. That your husband is your own and not another. You are taking ownership of that relationship, as well as acknowledging the responsibility that you have toward your husband. Again, this word submissive is used in the same way as in chapter 2. If you look down, verse 18, servants, be submissive or, or be subject. Simply understanding that this is, not a, this is not a suggestion, but rather a command. I know we're in a day of an age where independence, personal autonomy, pursuing our dreams is all the rage, whether husband or wife, whether male or female. And yet here we have a direct command of coming under your husband's leadership, coming under his authority in the household. And of course, submission. This is, this is the S word in Christianity. It's a word that's hard to wrap our heads around. It's one that we, we, we don't really like. It's not very fashionable. It's one where sometimes you may want to roll your eyes at it. You may think of your husband, how could I submit to this guy? This guy? <laughs> says, submit to your husband, be subject to him. It may conjure up a picture of a man and wife in the octagon, duking it out for supremacy, trying always to get the upper hand. I don't want to submit. Why don't you submit? You first. Either way, we can mistakenly mistakenly view submission as a muzzle on personal freedom, and anything that does so is often viewed as something to be avoided without actually considering the import and meaning of a passage like this, especially the biblical application of submission. Remember, submission is not some arbitrary command that God is making to make you miserable, wives. Remember, all of his commands are for your good. They're all for your good. They're meant to bring blessing into your marriage. As to this concept helps to take into consideration a few things which gird our biblical understanding of this. We want to say, what is not submission? Okay, we want to be very clear on this because I think it'll bring to light the truth of the matter. And also, husbands, it holds you accountable to not treat submission as things like, as what I'm about to say, submission is not. One, submission, I think this is the most obvious one that needs to be pointed out. Submission is not some kind of slavery or subservience. So wife, I'm going to say this, you are not a doormat, okay? Nor is your husband meant to treat you like one. You are not the personal property of your husband. Yes, you belong to him, but hey, he belongs to you too. You are not your own. You are equal before God, but that does not preclude that there are particular stations and may I say roles that we fulfill. You are not a lesser person. Now, this, this may have been very enlightening in Roman times because in many cases, yes, the wife was seen culturally as property of her husband. Um, husbands were seen as having the power of life and death over them. That was So this really, I think, clears up some things, that some confusion that Christians may have living in a Roman society, that, you, that men were to relate to their wives in a particular way, and conversely, wives were meant to relate to their husbands in a particular way. Here's another thing, and we've just alluded to it. Submission also is not silence. You are not to be the silent, subservient, 
you know, submissive wife who just stands there and just agrees with everything her husband says. Wife, wives, I'm going to tell you something profound. Your husband does not know everything. Take a minute for that to sink in. Your husband does not know everything, nor is his authority in the household unassailable. In fact, in a biblical Christ-exalting marriage, most wives, you included, will end up becoming your husband's best counselor and confidant. That is a good thing, especially for a, a wife who is in the Word, who knows her scriptures, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and is looking for a way to serve her husband in that regard. I can't tell you how many bad decisions I have avoided because Katie came up to me and said, my Lord, you may want to consider this. We'll get to that scripture later. Or Johnny, you may want to consider this. You may, you're thinking of doing this, but what about this? And let me tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's kept me from making all kinds of bad decisions. I can say before you today, Katie is my best counselor. We don't always have to agree but that's fine. What matters is that at, at, in, in these discussions, in, the, in, in this council, we are both oriented towards Scripture. And trust me, that isn't always going to happen if your wife is expected to be silent. Okay. Let her talk. Let her weigh in. Listen to one another. Husband, listen to your wife. Wife, listen to your husband. You have an opportunity to speak into his life and be an encouragement to him. Here's another one. This is a pretty big one, especially in modern days. Submission is not a social construct. Then we like to talk about those cultural things. Well, submission, roles, even, even gender assignment, it's all a social construct, right? And it has to be rejected. Well, what Scripture says clearly is that it is not a social construct. Submission is not this devious plan from the evil patriarchy to subjugate you and keep you down. Rather, it is part of the created order. We have to accept that important truth. Submission is part of the created order and always has been. In Genesis 3, even the Lord himself declares that the husband will be the head of the wife. He is, he is to be the head of the household. He is to lead. This is not something that has been made up in order for, for men to impose their power over women. It's part of the created order. Here's another thing, very important. This kind of goes along the lines of, of the slavery aspect. Submission does not mean you are a second-class citizen. It doesn't mean that your role in the marriage is somehow less important or less significant. In fact, if you read on in this chapter, it, it, it directs husbands to in the same way, again, that same directive, right? In the same way, I would say ultimately out of reverence to Christ, and following his example, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. But listen to this. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Think about what the gospel says. Okay. Paul, Paul, Paul mentions it in, in Galatians. I think he mentions it in Colossians as well. There's neither Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, right? We are all heirs in Christ. We will all stand by virtue of his death and resurrection, to inherit those things which he will give to us. That makes us all first-class citizens. We do not undercut one another for the sake, husbands, I'm talking to you, we do not undercut our wives or relegate them as second-class citizens because we think that somehow, being men, we are more important. Quite the opposite. We share equal importance before the Lord. We are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And nothing says a blessing to your marriage when you treat her as such. Listen to Ephesians 4, 22-23. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So we have these examples of submission. Even Jesus Submitted to the will of the Father. So if you have a problem with submission, look to the example of Jesus. He was submissive to the Father, yet equal to the Father in righteousness, splendor, dignity, and importance. Submission also is embedded in the very fabric of society. 
Think about it in our work life, especially if you own your own business. You understand that there is that there are roles that we fulfill. That not everyone can be a manager. That not everyone can be a leader. Not everyone can be a CEO. But in society, in the way it's structured, we see various duties and roles that are meant to be fulfilled and applied. Point is that no matter how exalted we may be among men or women, we are always ultimately going to be answering to somebody. Ultimately, we answer to God himself. Ultimately, we are accountable to his word. So this is the very idea of submission defended. It's not a bad thing. It's written in creation. We see it all over, and it's commanded by the Scripture. But again, rather than seeing this as a mere role to fulfill, rather than seeing it as play-acting, think of it as a way, wives, to bless your husband, to bring a gospel witness into the home, especially if your husband is an unbeliever. So here's uh, here's the second one. We have the exhortation, now we have the explanation of submission. And and we could spend so much time on unpacking what submission means, but I want to primarily stick with the text. But let's go on. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So let's start there. So Peter understands the reality that just because the wife is saved does not follow that the husband is also saved. So this, again, this scenario is one of an unequally yoked marriage. The behavior of the wife that Peter describes is applicable to the wife, whether the husband is saved or unsaved. And while these particular attitudes are, and deeds are great for any marriage, they lend themselves in a special way when the husband is an unbeliever, or keep in mind, when the husband is acting like an unbeliever. So Peter is really bringing up one the, the most challenging scenario imaginable. But the application stands even if your husband is a believer. Here's the point. The point is that the wife's behavior is not predicated or built on her husband's behavior. She does not look at her husband's moral failures and spiritual blindness as license to treat him with contempt, rebel against him, or to sin. And sometimes on each side of marriage, we may use that as an excuse, use the shortcomings or moral failures of our respective spouses to engage in sinful behavior. Well, if it's okay for them, it must be okay for me. Sometimes that kind of thinking can fall into straight up vengeance. Well, my husband has done this, so now I'm going to use this to really needle him, to really make him suffer, to really make him, to really remind him of how bad and terrible he's been to me. And scripture says, no, No, don't do that. Be a vessel of grace to him as difficult as it is. I think that's such a big deal in today's marriages is that we do, we we use the other person's ungodly behavior to excuse ourselves, you know, to to, to bite back. I mean, what what do we just learn about the Lord Jesus when he was being rejected, when he was suffering, when he was being reviled and spit upon? What does it say about him? When he was reviled, he what? He spoke not a word. He did not revile in return. So yes, as difficult as it is, we must allow Scripture's commands to stand. We don't, we don't look at Scripture and say, well, I am excused from this because my husband is such a bad dude and he's been doing such horrible things to me. It is not a license. Our, our sin is not a license to treat one another with contempt or sin against them. When, they, when your husbands are faithless, remain faithful. When they act unrighteously, act righteously. When your husband acts like a jackass, don't be a Jane, is what I'm saying. Be faithful, love the Lord, walk with Him, and be a vessel of honor, grace, and mercy. And you husbands may be you know, sitting there listening, yes, yes, amen, amen. I've got a word for you coming up, all right? <laughs> it's going to take a little bit, but we'll get there. But this is what the scripture says, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word. And I think this is, I think this is very clear. This, this disobedient to the word means that they willfully reject the gospel. I don't think this was a marriage where it, it was an unequally yoked marriage, but rather the husband and wife went into this marriage both as unbelievers and whether they are slave or free, not quite sure who Peter is addressing, but 
it seems that at some point, the wife heard the gospel, believed in Christ, and has been faithfully relaying that message to her husband, but the husband has willfully rejected. He is disobedient to the word, which means he's heard it, but he remains in unbelief. He has rejected Christ as king and savior. So he says, if this is the, if this is the case, if this is truly the case, don't, don't rebel, don't act dishonorably, don't leave him, don't be faithless. But he says, conduct yourselves in a particular way so as to be a gospel witness to him. Look at this, look at this anticipation. This is great. So that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. I mean, what a thought that your behavior demonstrates that the gospel is doing its work of grace. And it says, to be, to be one without a word, to be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, this doesn't so much, I know we talk a lot about lifestyle witnessing, you know, don't preach the gospel, you know. What, 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 is, what is that saying? If preach the gospel to all creation. If necessary, use words. This isn't talking about that. It's making a gospel connection to your conduct. By your behavior, you are demonstrating that the work of grace is real, that the Holy Spirit, as it dwells inside of you, wives, is making a very clear difference that your husband cannot deny. She's already preaching the gospel to you, and he's observing you. He's looking for consistency. This phrase, without talk, means aside from the pleas of the wife for her husband to repent. See, what you're doing by your life, by your, as I said, your chaste and respectful behavior is you're demonstrating that you are not all talk, that the, that the words of the gospel are not merely words. You are demonstrating that they truly have power. And, and I will say this again, as tempting as it may be to try to react in, in a way to your husband to demonstrate your frustration with him when he acts in a particular ungodly manner or fails to act with mercy and grace and with the leadership that God intends him to act, you are still obligated to conduct yourself in a particular fashion. Because you don't know. Remember, you're not to take matters into your own hands. You do not know the work that God may continue to do as you are a faithful witness to your husband. So do not seek vengeance upon him. Do not, do not seek to rebel. Do not look to be disrespectful to him or to dishonor him just because he fails to treat you in a Christ-like manner. See, this gospel that you are entreating him with is never to stand alone apart from a life lived with the holy purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Edmund Hebert says. Instead of trying to coax and argue her husband into becoming a Christian, she will be more effective by quietly living out its saving power before him. His conscience will be forced to admit the presence of a divine power in her faith that he has often mocked. And yes, none of us in here likes to be mocked. None of us in here likes to be made fun of or thought ill of or misrepresented, misrepresented or misunderstood. And, some, and, and sometimes, many times often, in, in, in the interest of justice, we'll say, okay, well, I'm going to show him. My husband is clearly mistaken here. I don't like what he said. I don't like the way he thinks. I don't like the way he looks at me. Whatever, you, whatever have you, whatever ungodly thing he does, there's always going to be that temptation to react in an ungodly manner, to seek your own justice, to seek your own vengeance, to remind him that he has no right to do that to you. That's a difficult thing. That's a very difficult thing. Because often these responses are done out of anger. They're done suddenly. Suddenly they're done without really thinking. They're done without taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. So he's saying here, remember. Remember who you are in the Lord. Remember the gospel witness you have toward your husband. There's greater, there's greater things at stake here than feeling just, than justifying ungodly behavior or compromising your faith, compromising your walk with integrity. And the hope is that the husband, if he is disobedient to the gospel for a time, will witness to that power of grace in your own life. He will see that this is not a knowledge that puffs up. This is a love that edifies. It's a grace that is real and hopefully cause him to wonder that his stony heart will be crushed because he cannot deny the reality of the transforming power of the gospel that is now taking place 
in your life. Think about what, all this fits together. Think about what Peter just said in verse 12. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, and this is any relationship, glorify God in the day of visitation. What do we say was the day of visitation? It was the visitation of salvation. As your husband observes your your grace, the grace of your life, your chaste and your respectful behavior, he will glorify God in the day of visitation. That your life will put the power of the gospel on display. You will, as it were, silence your critics when grace in action is witnessed. And no charge will be able to be brought against you as you are faithful. But notice what she's not doing. She's not stirring up trouble. She's not rebelling against her husband. There's no cause to see the Christian message as subversive or lawless. We talked about that in terms of our witness to the governing authorities, right? That Christ did not redeem a people that would then go and be lawless and rebellious and, and be a bunch of insurrectionists. No, they would, leave pe- they would lead peaceable lives, gospel-centered lives, no matter what the government situation was. And of course, this is meant to be handled with great care, great patience, great humility. Because think about it. Think about the life that you do with your husband. Go to bed together. You wake up together. You spend time together. But here's the important, here's the important difference. Everything, you, you may do so many of the same things and you may do them together. But what's different is the purpose. What's different is the reason, the motivation behind everything, the power beneath everything. Everything is done for a different reason. You do your life to glorify God, to put Christ on display, and your husband does not. So what benefit is that to set, to set those things aside in order to act in a subversive manner, in order to disrespect your husband? But here's what he goes on to say. What is being observed here? Two very simple things. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what's the first thing, wives, that you can do for your husband as a witness? Be faithful. This is what he's talking about. Marital fidelity. That your body is his alone. That you do not seek the companionship of other men. You do not fall headlong into adulterous behavior. Be faithful. Because in your, in your witness to your husband, what are you communicating constantly regarding the gospel? God is faithful. His son is faithful. His word is faithful. If you believe that, then guess what you're going to be? Faithful. Your chaste and your respectful behavior. Again, respect, reverence, honoring his authority, honoring his headship in the home. Demonstrates godliness, demonstrates patience, demonstrates a fear of God, serves as a catalyst for living a holy life. In Titus 2.5, we read this instruction to be, for women to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husband. Listen to this. There's a big purpose here. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. That is the ultimate purpose. We, we can, we can, you, you, could, you can think of so many things that are at stake, but what is the biggest reason that you conduct yourself in a sensible, pure, kind, respectful manner? Because you don't want the word of God to be dishonored. That's, that's all of our priorities as Christians. He just happens to be talking to wives at that point. But our top priority in marriage is to see that the word of God is honored in our house. And we each have our respective ways of showing that honor to the word of God. And Paul spells that out here. That is how women honor the word of God. And there's a direct correlation to how they relate to and treat their husbands. I think this should impress upon us two things. For one, in an, un, in an unequally yoked marriage, the temptation may be there for the wife to leave her husband, perhaps even because she may be attracted to another believer. The desire to be married with someone of a common faith, or perhaps the thought comes across that if the, if the wife's husband is an unbeliever, then she really has no more duty to him. She has no more responsibility to him. And we find that the only time that that is actually the case is if the husband departs from her. The unbelieving husband departs from her. But if he consents to stay, then so is the wife and to engage in this godly behavior. Again, your freedom in Christ is not the pretext for a rebellion against your husband in the same way that 
If a slave was under an unjust master, that was not a, his freedom in Christ was not a pretext to rebel. In the same way, the believing wife who has rejected the unbelief, the paganism of culture, is to remain with her husband and to impress upon him the legitimacy of her faith, to make Christ known through word and through deed. And I would say there may be times where your chaste, respectful behavior may not make much of an impression. But I would say, to this, say, say this to you, your, your husband is watching you. Your husband is watching you. He's paying attention. And when he pays attention and he sees you, he should notice that he is married to a faithful wife who respects his authority in the home, who honors, who honors him, even if, even if he's unworthy of that honor. Many of us are. Here's another thing to think about in this context. For the wife who is now righteous in Christ and made pure, to live and continue living with the husband who is spiritually impure, she not only is patient with him and bears with it, but she continues respecting him as head of the household and caring for him. This is something that would not escape the husband's notice. The hope is this, that as you are a gospel witness to your husband, he would realize that the life he is now living is destroying his soul and that he needs the purifying power of the blood of Christ. See, this, this observing that Peter uses is careful scrutiny. This isn't sort of a fly-by-night, hey, I'll take notice whenever I want to. No, this is, this is a careful scrutiny of the life that you are living. You, you never know when he may be watching. You never know what he may be noticing. But I have to impress upon you, uh, ladies, again and again, Remember that the Lord is always watching. Remember that His eye is always upon you. Remember that His Spirit is always with you to empower you to be a good and faithful wife. We should not take that so lightly. I think we've got time to go over the, uh, the third one. We have exhortation. We have, ex- we have the explanation. And thirdly, we now have the expression. So what does this look like as we further unfold it? We've talked about We've talked about chaste behavior, respectful behavior, but he goes on. Look at verse 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Let's see if we can get through this, this part of the verse. So adornment, what Peter isn't, Peter isn't saying here, wives, that it's bad to try to look pretty or that it's bad to try to dress yourself up and look nice for your husband. He's not knocking that, okay? But what he, he, what he is doing here is he is telling you what your priorities are, what the most important things are. That's why in some of your translations, he says your adornment must not be merely external. He's not saying that braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses is something that is sinful or something that is discouraged. He's saying just don't... Whatever it is, don't let, don't, don't let what you are demonstrating to your husband be confined to the external, be confined to the way you look. There is so much more that is going on here, so much more to be put on display. First thing is braiding the hair. And now some of these things are subject to the given culture, but we talk about first is braiding the hair. This is not talking about braiding in and of itself. What is it, what is it pointing to? When Peter mentions braiding of the hair, he's talking about a complex hairdo which requires the services of of a professional hairdresser. A common thing that was done now and was done then. It was very common in Roman times, especially among the wealthy, that there was a preoccupation in uh, toward externals in unbelieving society. What's what's what are the most important things in life, right? How do you know what's important to you? Things you spend time on. Money on things you spend th- time you spend thinking about something, and th- and when you spend time talking about those things, what are you investing? And that's what he's saying here. Don't be preoccupied with this. Don't make this the most important thing because it isn't the most important thing. And even today, we've taken this to a new level of ridiculousness. 2016 was the most current figure I could find, but apparently more than 16 billion dollars was spent on plastic surgery procedures in 20. 16, that is a big figure. I mean, we're spending, men and women alike, we're spending more money than ever trying to turn back the clock. It's become an obsession. It's become its own idol to 
to, to uh, preserve what's, what's, what can be lost, to reshape your face and your body instead of aging gracefully over time with all the cutting, with all the lifting, you may become something unrecognizable. That's what plastic surgery does. You can't even tell who the person is anymore. That's what it becomes. Turns out defying time and gravity is an expensive adventure indeed. Something that you even don't want end up to end up putting on display. Must take care of this. That there is so much more to life, there is so much more to marriage than externals. See, Peter has in mind here a holistic thing. Yes, it's good to look pretty. There's nothing wrong with that. But do not do that at the expense of the inner woman, of the hidden things. It's interesting that the more man spends on trying to save and preserve himself, the more disfigured and grotesque he becomes. Wearing gold jewelry, often used to accent the most recent hairstyle. This could point to necklaces, rings, bracelet, bracelets, really anything shiny and glittery that could be secured around the neck, arms, and ankles. And this, of course, Peter's alluding to the particular purpose uh, that these things are used for. They could be used for the purpose of, of ostentatious displays to signify your wealth your place among society? Could you be used to draw attention to outer beauty? And I would say this, there's a fine line between looking attractive, hopefully for your husband, and then trying to be attractive to everyone else and to try to draw attention to other people. It says putting on dresses. Again, dresses are nice. Dresses are great. Most importantly, dresses are feminine. And there should be a Difference in the way we look. There should be a difference, clear difference in the way we dress. It's a little easier today than back then because in the first century, men wore dresses too. Of course, there were dresses for men and then there were dresses for women. But here's the point. Is this, is this gaudy, pretentious display that can be involved when one wears particular clothing and jewelry and hairstyles at the neglect of spiritual things? And like the rest of these things mentioned, putting on dresses is used in this context as putting on a show, drawing attention at the expense of paying attention to spiritual matters. So once again, the overarching idea here is not the external physical attractiveness, is that which wins a soul to Christ. What Peter is draw, telling the wife to do, what he is instructing her to do is this. It says, let it be the hidden person of the heart. No matter, to the Christian wife, no matter how good you look, that is not going to save your husband. Do not use the externals to try to win your husband to Christ. Let it be that which Christ is working on the inside to be that witness of grace to your unbelieving husband. And this is a very, this is a very important key thing here. What good does it do when you are trying to demonstrate to your husband that you are not of this world, right? That you belong to the kingdom of Christ. When the way you conduct yourself and the way you dress looks like everything else that the world does. Now, I know there's a, a, there's a dozen qualifications we can make there. But I mean worldliness in the sense that what you put on is done for the same reason that the rest of the world does it. That is, to put yourself on display and to draw attention to yourself. But he says, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. So let's go through this very quickly. And Peter uses a strong adversative, say, not, don't let it be this, not the outward, but let it be this, the inward, emphasizing this very important truth, to be the hidden person of the heart, as opposed to what is external, as opposed to what is obvious before all, as opposed to what is meant to draw attention to yourself. When the emphasis on the hidden, of the per hidden person of the heart what are you, what, what's the purpose there? What's the intent? It's to draw attention to the person of Christ and the work he is doing in your heart. It's not showy. It's not pretentious. It doesn't strain for attention. It's also hidden in the sense that it often goes willfully unnoticed. It goes underappreciated, right? But let me tell you something. Inner beauty, the importance of inner beauty is not just something ugly people are trying to draw attention to. Inner beauty is something that is immensely important according to Scripture. Even Proverbs 31.30, we've heard this verse 
many times. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What's the contrast there? Things that are temporary, things that are fading. It's not that, it's not that beauty is bad. It's not even that charm is bad, but they are fleeting. They are temporary. They can be used for wicked purposes. But fear of the Lord is not something that is going to be deceitful or fleeting. It is a fixture in the life of a godly woman. It is an et- fear of the Lord is an eternal quality, and that is a praiseworthy thing. That is what should be always on display before your husband, whether believer, whether he is a believer or an, or an unbeliever. That is the greatest beauty, is a woman who fears and honors the Lord. See, outwardly, we're always physically decaying. But inwardly, as we age, as you age, the inner person is to become more refined and beautiful, something that God is fashioning through the power of His Holy Spirit, through the truth of His Word. See, women, these are things that seek to acquire and grow things in your own life that are timeless, that defy convention, that point your husband to Christ. This leads us to the next part of the verse. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, gentleness and quietness are some of the first things to fly out of the window when there is opposition in the home. It gets loud. It gets terse. It gets coarse. It gets not so gentle. Again, we don't want you to be at each other's throats, but those are the things that can happen when the Word of God is neglected and ignored and silenced. But note these qualities. They are said to be imperishable. They're not subject to decay or corruption. What does that point us to? What what have we seen already in the book of 1 Peter that is not subject to corruption and perishing? Our eternal inheritance. So in that very sense, you are acting as as an eternal inheritance to your own husband. That's how precious this behavior is. It stands when other things decay. Again, gentleness refers simply to meekness and humility. You are not to be proud and and demanding, but, but humble. You're devoted to your husband. You're considerate to him, even though he's an unbeliever. Quiet, remember, quiet does not mean silent. Quiet refers to a calm and soft disposition. That's the one thing that my gramps, when he, he married Katie and I, he told us in his sermon when, he, when the ceremony was going on, he's like, be soft toward one another. Said, Don't be harsh. Be soft toward each other. And, and the, I can't begin to describe the blessings that is reaped in my own marriage. To be soft. It also speaks to what uh, you are not to be. Loud, obnoxious, pushy, demanding of your own way doesn't mean that you lack conviction, but that those convictions that you have are expressed in a manner that you do not attempt to usurp your husband's role in the household. You still honor his role. And this can definitely set the tone in the household as well as in social gatherings. It's like the difference between being at Disneyland on Saturday. You know, if you've ever been to Disneyland on a weekend, I know Christians don't go, don't go to Disneyland anymore, but work with me here. Um, <laughs> It's loud. It's noisy. It's a sea of people. It's like every tongue and tribe and nation have converged upon the happiest place on earth. You can't see two feet in front of you. You don't want your home life to be like that. You want it to be like a park in a neighborhood on a quiet day, right? There should be peace, you know, harmony in your family. And even if one of you is an unbeliever, even if your, 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 your husband is an unbeliever, you can bring to whatever degree, a softness, a humility, the peace of Christ, because Christ is with you. And what an opportunity to bless your home and to bless your husband with that, rather than noise and shouting and and pushiness. Be a vessel of grace to him. And look at this. Again, most, most most of what I've said to you is completely rejected by today's woman. I mean, I, can't, I don't even know what wave of feminism we're on right now. I think it's fourth or something like that. But listen to this. It says, this is precious in the sight of God. That's what I'm saying, women. Keep that in mind. It's not what is precious in the sight of other women. It's not public opinion, right? It's not the social norms. It even goes beyond what your husband thinks. What matters ultimately, this is where we come back to the word, what matters Concerning you as a wife, as a believing wife, is what God thinks. This behavior may be patently rejected, but it is precious 
in the sight of God. So don't be alarmed, do not be discouraged, do not be derailed when you see these things in Scripture as being tossed off by unbelief and sometimes even professing Christian women. You listen to what the Word says. You keep in mind that this behavior is precious in the sight of God, forsaking all others. Ask yourself, what is it that God says? What is it that is precious to Him? Well, this, this focus on your internal character, being a woman of God, and not strictly limiting your witness to your husband to the externals, but the hidden person of the heart, the things which no one may notice, but God notices. And God, over time, cultivates that heart, builds up that behavior, reinforces it, and makes you a woman of grace. So don't be doubting. Be faithful never underestimating what a humble heart before the Lord can do in a marriage, even if your husband is an unbeliever. So stay faithful, respect your husband, honor him, be a woman of God, and watch what the Lord does in your marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, for your word, for our time in it. Um, again, so much more we could say, but I pray that you would uh, bless uh, each and every wife in this church. Speak to their hearts. Bring to bear upon them uh, the truth and timelessness of your word, that they may be a, a gospel witness to their husbands. And whether their husbands are believers or unbelievers, we see the, the powerful effect that grace brings into any marriage. Pray, Lord, that if uh, any believing wife in here has an unbelieving husband, that you would continue to use them as a vessel of grace and mercy, that they would uh, serve their husbands humbly to be faithful to them so that their husbands may come to saving faith in Christ, to truly believe in him and to embrace him as Lord and Savior so that that marriage may be harmonious and of one mind, mutually submissive to the lordship of Christ and his word, and to be a joy, to be a delight. We were, Lord, you created man and woman for one another, for companionship, but ultimately to together to glorify you by having a, a marriage that is built up by faith in Christ. We ask for that blessing, Lord, for even believing husbands, that you would, that you would use the, the faith of the women of God in here to continue to soften them, to, to be a faithful counselor, and Lord, that uh, we as their husbands would respond, uh, respond humbly with gentleness, with an open heart that accepts your truth, that delights in you. Pray for all the marriages in here. We know that each of them are in various stages of, of development. Some of us are, are really loving, marriages, are loving our marriage and enjoying all of the blessings and benefits that you have uh, gifted them with. And some of us are really struggling, Lord, for many different reasons. And we would ask for your, um, your intervention your involvement, your activity, even, even your discipline if it calls for it, just so that we would be drawn to you, Father. We, we can rely on you upon that, and it is only by your strength that we were even able to come to that. So I pray that you would do your work uh, in all of our hearts today so that you ultimately would be honored. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.